Have you ever had in your own life a new, a new beginning? You're so hopeful. You're so hopeful because you're making a new start. And this time, things are going to be different. Things are really going to be different now because you're making a new start. Maybe it's coming home from a conference. This week was a major conference in the U.S. together for the gospel. Pastor Chris Powell was there. A couple of others from the church were there. And sometimes maybe you go to to a conference like together for the gospel or or something else and the teaching is so good and the singing is so encouraging and the fellowship is so sweet. You feel like, man, things are going to be different now. Things are really going to be different in my life. Or perhaps maybe you go to church and it's a particularly powerful sermon. It hits you and you feel like things are going to be different. Now, I'm going to make a new start. Things are really going to be different. This is a new beginning. Or maybe it's just something like the turn of one calendar year to another. Maybe you're the sort of person that makes New Year's resolutions and you feel like, all right, this year, this year I'm going to stick to my New Year's resolutions and things are really going to be different this year. Or maybe you don't make resolutions per se, but you just, you just hope that this new year is going to bring something better. Or a birthday can do the same thing. Or maybe it's just a new stage of life. You get a new job. You move into a new house. Something like that. But this feeling that you're making a new beginning and things are really going to be different now. You're really going to change. You're not going to live the way that you used to live. You're not going to carry on in the same sins that you used to carry on in. You're not going to fall into those same patterns that you always fall into and that you hate yourself for. You're not going to do that anymore because it's a new beginning. You hope that this time, this time, it's going to be different. I think we've all been there. One way or another. One type of circumstance or another. I think we've all been in a situation like that where we feel like we're making a new start. And we're hopeful. We have an optimism about how things are going to go from here on out. But when we read this passage of Scripture about Noah and his family coming out from the ark, we might feel the same kind of optimism. After all, Noah was a righteous man. Noah was a righteous man. Noah stood there and preached to the wicked people of his generation about the wrath to come. And Noah told them, you need to avail yourself of the provision that God has made for your salvation or God's wrath will come upon you and sweep you away. Noah preached of the substitutionary sacrifices that we have seen in our study so far that God had already instituted. And that there is a way, though we are sinners, there is a way to relate rightly to God. And these sacrifices show us the way. As we know from Hebrews, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. But all of these substitutionary sacrifices from the beginning were intended to point forward to the Lamb of God who would one day take away 
the sin of the world. And though there was a depth of understanding that surely these early believers did not have, nevertheless, from the beginning, those who trusted in God, those who believed in the provision that He made for their salvation, those who walked with Him by faith, were enabled to see something of what these things represented, that God would deal with their sin, that God would provide a means of atonement for their sin. And Noah testified to the people around him of atonement for sin through the blood of a substitute. Noah preached of righteousness. And likely the people mocked Likely the people reviled him, but he kept on faithfully building that ark. Noah was a good man. Noah was a righteous man. And now, though the flood was horrible in one sense, it wiped out basically the whole world. And in that sense, it was was horrible. On another sense, it was cleansing. And all of these people who had given themselves over utterly to sin and to wickedness were gone from the earth and out comes from the ark this righteous man and his family. Surely things are going to be different now. Surely the world is going to be different now. Noah has learned from seeing how God deals with sin that sin is a bad way to go. Noah's sons have learned from seeing how God deals with sin, that sin is a bad way to go. Surely they're not going to go into the same patterns of sin that everybody had before the flood. Surely that's not going to happen. And yet what happens? What happens in your life when you feel like you're having this new beginning, this new start, when you tell yourself this year is going to be different? When you tell yourself, I'm not going to fall into those old patterns. I'm not going to fall into those same sins. Don't you often find yourself back where you said you wouldn't be? Doing the things you said you weren't going to do. Yes, sometimes we do really and truly make progress. That's the nature of God's work in us, that we really and truly do make progress. But the progress is often not as fast or as steady as we would hope it would be. And often our putting off the old man and putting on the new man is not as definitive as we wish it would be. That we would just, from the time we heard this one particular sermon or from the time we went to this one conference or from the time that the date changed from December 31st to January 1st, we just never went back. Often that's not the way that the change happens. Obviously, often our progress is not what we would have hoped that it would be. And in, though in a very real way we do change, in a very real way we find that year after year after year, new beginning after new beginning after new beginning, we're still struggling with sin. We're still falling back into those old patterns that we told ourselves we wouldn't fall back into. 
year after year after year we're doing the same thing. See, when Adam was put in the garden in the first place, there was so much reason for hope. There was this perfect environment where everything Adam could have needed, everything Adam could have wanted was there. We talked about the bounty of the garden several months ago as we were looking particularly at Genesis 2. Everything that Adam would have wanted and needed was there. And God walked with Adam in the garden. Adam had communion with God in the garden in a special way. Walking with him physically in a way that people since haven't. Adam's situation was ideal. He couldn't blame anyone else for his sin. There was only Eve. He couldn't rightly blame her, though he tried. Because God hadn't created her corrupt. God hadn't created her wicked. God had created her with the same nature as His. So He was willful and complicit in sin. And He plunged the whole human race into misery. We inherited guilt from Him. We inherited corruption from Him. We saw that He passed down His sinful nature to His sons. We read that Cain killed Abel. Then we read that God gave them another son, Seth. And in Genesis chapter 5 and verse 3, we read that Seth was a son in Adam's likeness after Adam's image. And so we read about We read that sin didn't just stay there with Adam's generation, nor did it stay there with Cain and Abel and Seth's generation, but we read about the sins of further generations. We come to understand that something profound happened when Adam sinned. It wasn't just a temporary lapse that caused a few weeks or a few months or a few years of suffering for Adam, but something that profoundly changed the way things are and even the nature of mankind. And we see that the threatening of punishment when God threatened to send the flood to bring His wrath against sin in Genesis chapter 6, we see that that wasn't enough to curb sin. That the people that were alive on the earth in those days continued in their sin, persisted in their sin, refused to get in the ark even when faced with destruction due to God's wrath. So we see that what was needed Or sorry, we see that a perfect environment 
was not enough to keep man from sin. We see that the promise of reward to Adam in the garden, should he have obeyed, was not enough to keep him from sin. We see that the threat of punishment, both with Adam and with those who are walking the face of the earth in Genesis chapter 6, was not enough to keep them from sin. But now, but now Noah makes a fresh start. He comes out of the ark and it's a new beginning. And Adam's had the opportunity to look back and to see how God has dealt with mankind thus far. And he's had the opportunity to look back and to see that that killing somebody who bothers you isn't the way to go about it because he's been able to learn from Cain and Abel. He's been able to see that building cities and advancing in trades is not enough to keep people from sin as he's observed the line of Cain. He's been able to see that walking with God is so much better and so much safer than carrying on in sin as he's seen how God has preserved him and his family through the flood. Surely this time it will be different. Noah emerges from the ark even as somewhat of a second Adam. In many ways, it's like, an, it's like a, a second creation story. It's not a second creation story, but there's, there's parallels. After all, Noah is the father of all mankind from this point forward. And so many of the things that God said to Adam in Genesis chapter 1 and 2 are repeated to Noah here in these chapters. Just as the Spirit of God, the, I think in Hebrew it's something like this, Ruach, hovered over the face of the deep in the first few verses of Genesis. So we read that the Ruach, the wind, blew back the waters and caused the flood to recede. So you have the wind over the waters in Genesis chapter 1 and you have the wind over the waters in the flood narrative. You have in many ways a parallel between Adam and Noah. The first man, the father of all, him who gets the creation mandate, so on and so forth. Surely this time it will be different. We can almost feel the hope that Noah might have felt in his chest, that his sons might have felt, their wives might have felt as they came out. Though the flood was sobering, and grave and severe. Now it's time for a fresh start. Perhaps the way that people like us feel when we make a fresh start. Maybe they felt something like that. That we can make we can make something new here. We can our family. We don't have to deal with all the sin of all the people around us as we did before the flood. We can have our own little idealized heaven on earth, as it were. The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark, Genesis chapter 9 and verse 18, were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. 
You can almost see them in your mind's eye coming out of the ark. Maybe like the way that a boxer makes his way out of his dressing room, down toward the ring. There's, there's an expectancy. And a, a tension in the air. What's going to happen? There's a hopefulness. Or the way that a football team takes to the, the pitch. Again, there's a hopefulness and a, a wondering, what's going to happen? What's going to happen here? What will they do? But what do we read? Verse 20, Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. So far, so good. He comes out of the ark. We don't know what his work was beforehand, but presumably he was not a man of the soil. It says here he began to be a man of the soil. So he comes out of the ark and takes up a new trade, starts working the land and plants a vineyard. This is good. This is something that is right, something that Adam and his descendants were called to do from the beginning, to cultivate the land, to to bring light, order, life. So, so far, so good. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. You can almost imagine, again, just the hopefulness. As day after day, he's, he's working the land, he's tilled the ground, he's planted the produce of the ground starts to spring up. There's that tired feeling at the end of the day of manual labor. And he lays down night after night, hoping and dreaming that the world would be better than it was before the flood. But then verse 21, one day or one night, he drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. Noah gets drunk and passes out naked in his tent. The rest of the scripture doesn't speak of wine itself as a bad thing. In fact, we read even that God gives wine to gladden the heart of a man. The scripture speaks often positively about wine and other Beverages that have the possibility to intoxicate. And it cautions us. It doesn't say these things are intrinsically bad. It doesn't say that having a drink is intrinsically bad, intrinsically wrong. But it cautions us. Because there is a way to abuse these good things. Just as the scripture speaks positively of sex, but at the same time it cautions us. Because there is a way to abuse this good gift. What we find in this passage is that Noah abuses this good gift. He drinks too much. He gets drunk. And he passes out in his tent. Now before we get high and mighty. And begin looking down our noses at Noah. We have to remember that we too have been hopeful about new beginnings. That we too have felt like this time things are going to be different. And that we too have slipped back into sin so we can't be too self-righteous here but what we do have to recognize is that this is not the idyllic new world that perhaps we might have hoped it would be before the narrative unfolded in 22 
in verse 22, the story gets worse. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. What seems to have happened here is simply that Ham, his son, saw his father naked and basically was disrespectful and and mocking his father and, and humiliating his father in this situation. There are commentators who think uh, that perhaps Ham performed an indecent act with his father or something like this because elsewhere in the scripture we read about sinful sexual acts within a family referring to it, being referred to as uncovering the nakedness of your father. So some commentators think that, but I don't think we have the textual basis to do this. And it seems even from the fact that Shem and Japheth, their resolution was to cover up their father. It seems probably much more likely that all Ham was doing was mocking and humiliating his father. So he wanted to make a joke about it and disrespect his dad. And Shem and Japheth show honor and show respect to their dad. And they walk backwards and cover him up with a garment. But what we see is that Noah is not the (coughs) idyllic second Adam. Family relationships that were distorted by the fall were not all of a sudden now idyllic after the flood. It's not as if all of a sudden Noah and his relationships with Shem, Ham, and Japheth were unaffected by sin, unaffected by the fall. What you see is that here in this section, despite all the hopefulness that they might have felt coming out of the ark, what you see in this passage is that things are very much the same as they were before the flood. The boxer might have, found, might have felt hopeful on his way down to the ring, but he got knocked out. The football team might have felt hopeful as they took to the pitch, but they were defeated. Noah might have felt like this is really, really going to be different. But these immediate events and the rest of the unfolding narrative that we'll read about in the next 1180 chapters of the Bible tell us that really things were not that much different after the fall, or pardon me, after the flood. Things were very similar. And again, this is not because Noah didn't have the right environment. Adam had the right environment and he sinned. It wasn't because Noah didn't have the right incentives. He had seen firsthand the kind of punishment that God is capable of bringing for sin. And he could see firsthand from his own deliverance the way that God is quite capable of rewarding and caring for those who walk closely with him. He had all the incentive in the world. Again, you could look back at Adam and see that incentive wasn't the issue here. There was not an external problem that caused things to be the same after the flood as they were before the flood. The thing that caused the same, things to be the same after the flood as before the flood was an internal problem. Sin. 
the corruption that Noah inherited from Adam. The corruption that Ham inherited from Adam. Things were basically the same after the flood as before the flood because the human heart was the same after the flood as before the flood. You see, the flood could cleanse the face of the earth, the outward parts of the earth, but the flood could not cleanse the inward parts of the man. And so things were basically the same after as before. This second Adam, really, though he was in a sense placed in a new world, though he was hopeful about this new world, really this new world ended up being a lot like the old world. And the new beginning ended badly and left us longing for a new beginning that would end better. Throughout the rest of Scripture, we see more new beginnings, more times to be hopeful. We're going to read soon about Abraham, We read about wonderful promises that God makes to Abraham. We see Abraham leaving his homeland for a place that God would give him. Eventually we see Abraham's children enter into that land that God had promised way back to give to Abraham. And when they get in that land, we think, that's a new beginning. Things are really going to be different here. But things aren't different. And then we see King David, for example, ascend to the throne. And he's defeating the enemies of God and the enemies of God's people before them. And we think things are really going to be different. But things really aren't all that different. We see the Israelites carried away into captivity and then returning to their land we think things are really going to be different but they're really not all that different we see a whole bunch of new beginnings throughout the old testament and each time we're hopeful the people in the stories would have been hopeful maybe this is the time that things are all going to turn around that things are all going to become better maybe now is that time that turning point Maybe this is that great shift in history when things are going to be better. But they're not. The second Adam, Noah, other Adams, other figureheads of new beginnings. You think of Moses or David and the way that these guys are leaders of new beginnings. In that sense, like Adam, leaders of a people None of them, none of their new beginnings become a lasting turning point in human history. But then a new beginning happens that will leave nothing unchanged. What could be more of a new beginning than the birth of a baby? So in Bethlehem, little baby's voice cries out 
And it's a new beginning. A new beginning of a new life. This baby's a special baby. A star signaled his birth. His birth comes as a fulfillment of prophecy. Who will this baby be? What will this baby do? Maybe this will be the turning point. In a sense, again, like a boxer making his way down to the rain, this new little baby enters the world. There's this hopefulness, this anticipation, this expectancy, this tension. The baby begins to grow up. And we wonder, is this baby going to be like all the other new beginnings that we read about through the Old Testament that starts well, begin well, give us a hopeful feeling, and end badly? We follow the growth of this baby into childhood and into adulthood. And we see Christ Jesus exemplary in every respect. Blameless. Truly blameless. Not in a relative sense, but truly blameless. Truly above reproach. Not just in a relative sense. But there is literally no dirt to find from this man. People come to trap him up in his words. To catch him saying something wrong, making an error. And he answers them all perfectly. We see situations that we might think, what's going to happen here? Like meeting a woman alone at the well. We look back at the Old Testament, the stories of kings falling into adultery. We think, what will happen here? But Jesus honors her and respects her and speaks of salvation to her. We see things happen that would make any of us angry. Will Cain kill Abel again? But we see Jesus responding righteously. Throughout his life, we see all of these situations that throughout the Old Testament for other men have gone wrong, have gone badly. But we see Jesus in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John handling all of these things in an exemplary way. He's able to draw near to idolaters, those who are not worshipers of Yahweh, without himself becoming idolatrous. We see him draw near to tax collectors and sinners without himself sinning. We see him drawing near to gluttons and drunks so close that people say that he is a glutton and a drunkard. But he's not. We see this man of impeccable character, true righteousness, true holiness. We see him even in the wilderness, tempted by Satan. And yet he comes out, the victor. He wins that fight. This is like a boxer climbing the ranks, winning, fight after fight, after fight, 
and climbing higher and higher in the ranks, undefeated, undefeated, undefeated. And then the ultimate test of his life, the cross. Jesus goes into the garden and he prays, Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. See, Jesus was not a weakling. He wasn't afraid, ultimately, of the physical suffering that was about to happen. Many men, even, even Christians throughout the ages, have faced physical suffering with great courage. Jesus wasn't sweating drops of blood about that. But he knew that he, his job was to drink the cup of God's wrath right down to the last drop. If there was ever a time that he would shrink back, that he would not do what he was called to do, it was when he, the innocent one, was called to bear the sins of his people, the punishment that they deserve, the wrath that they deserve upon himself. If there was ever a time that we would expect him to shrink back, that would be it. But he says, nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. And then he goes and he finds his friend sleeping. When you're under stress, when you're under pressure, don't you get more irritated with the people around you? Wouldn't we expect him to treat his friends badly, sinfully? But he doesn't. And then Judas and his band come to arrest Jesus. And all of his disciples run and abandon him. Again, with all this pressure, with all this stress, wouldn't you expect Jesus to react badly? When people bring false accusations against him. And this speaks to the worthiness of his character. Then nobody could even bring a decent accusation against this guy. Falsely accusing him hitting him, mocking him. Eventually they twist a crown of thorns upon his head and lead him out to be crucified. And if we would expect that there would be a time that this man would fail, that this man would become like all of the other men throughout the Old Testament who maybe started well and gave us a glimpse of hope but failed, this would be it. But Christ Jesus goes to the cross. And on the cross, He bears the sins of all the people. From the day that Adam fell into sin until to the day that He returns in glory to consummate all things. All the people who would trust in Him from that first day to that last day. He bears their sins upon the cross. He drinks the cup of God's wrath right down to the last drop without sinning. And then he says, it is finished. It is finished. This boxer has climbed the ranks undefeated all the way up to the title fight. 
And in the title fight, he has just delivered the knockout blow. And this boxer is crowned, as it were, the heavyweight champion of the world. Christ Jesus not only starts well, but he finishes well. 1 Corinthians calls him the last Adam because after this long litany of others that were in some respects like Adam, Jesus is the last and the final. There's no need to look for another one because he is the seed of the woman who crushes the serpent's head. He is the one who brings a real new beginning. He is the Adam of the new creation, the first one from whom all of the people who will populate that new creation can trace their existence back to. We're here biologically because of Adam. But when we're there, we'll be there spiritually because of Christ Jesus. And so 1 Corinthians calls him the last Adam for that reason. But 1 Corinthians 15 calls him the second man. They call him the second man. It calls him the second man because he's the only man of note to speak of since Adam. All of the others started well and didn't finish well. All of the others had new beginnings that ended badly. Throughout the storyline of Scripture, we get that feeling of hope in our chest over and over again as we begin reading at Genesis. Maybe this time will be different. Maybe this time will be different. Maybe this new beginning will be a real new beginning that will change everything. Maybe nothing will be the same from this point forward. But it's only when we get to Christ Jesus that a new beginning really is the new beginning that changes everything. It's only when we get to Jesus that we find a man who starts well and finishes well. It's only when we get to Jesus that we find an Adam who actually is the first man of a new creation. So 1 Corinthians 15 calls him the last Adam and the second man. So this passage in Scripture tells us <coughs> that things after the flood are going to be very much like things were before the flood. We read about a curse of descendants. We read about a blessing of descendants, which should indicate to us that again, things are going to be very much like they were before the flood. There will be those on earth who walk with God by faith, who trust in Him, His provision for atonement, His provision of salvation, the promise of the coming seed of the woman who will crush the serpent's head. There are those who will walk with God by faith, and there are those who won't. And then that division of mankind into those two categories is going to continue. It foreshadows to us 
that God is going to deal primarily with the line of Shem. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. We'll deal with that more in the coming chapters. And cursed be Canaan. Things are going to be very much the same after the flood as they were before the flood. Until someone comes who will be very much unlike Noah. So the tension of the storyline remains if we look only at Genesis chapter 9. We see that just as the litany of names in Genesis chapter 5, so-and-so fathered so-and-so, fathered so-and-so, fathered so-and-so, and he died, and he died, and he died, and he died. As it was in Genesis chapter 5, so it is in Genesis chapter 9. After the flood, verse 28, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. Things, the tension in the storyline of Scripture, if we look only at Genesis chapter 9, remains. The flood had not actually really solved anything. Again, it had cleansed the outward parts of the earth, but it hasn't cleansed the inward parts of man. Noah isn't going to bring a new people, bring about a new people, a new civilization, a new creation that's going to be drastically different from the way things were before the flood. We're left to wait. But if we do, as we've done tonight, look ahead in the storyline, we find that eventually one will be born who is not like Noah. One who is also an Adam-like figure, but one who is not like the first Adam, nor like Noah, but one who is an Adam who does what he should do and refrains from doing what he shouldn't do all the way to the end of his life until he says on the cross, it is finished. And that Adam wins for us our salvation and undoes the curse that is upon this earth and ushers in a new world and a new people and actually deals with the inward parts of man. So, though it's good to hope that we'll be increasingly free from sin as our lives go on and to strive toward that end, we have to keep in mind at the same time that our hope is not ultimately in the change that we experience day by day by day and the willpower that we bring to bear on that process. Neither is our hope in being in a new circumstance. Neither is our hope being in a new season of life. Neither is it our hope being in being free from bad peer pressure the way that Noah was freed from bad peer pressure after the flood. Our hope can't be in these things. Our hope can't be inside ourselves, nor can our hope be in an external change of our circumstances. 
nor can our hope be in any figure but Christ, any person but Christ. All princes will fail. Kings will fail. Presidents will fail. Prime ministers will fail. The only one that is worthy of all of our hope is that second and last Adam, Christ Jesus.